your worldview is like a puzzle. It's a complete picture made up of hundreds or even thousands of individual pieces. Now, each of those pieces are fine existing on their own, but if they don't fit together to create a complete picture, then there is a serious flaw in your worldview. Now, up to this point in this series about Satan, we have been looking at all the different pieces of what the Bible says about Satan. And one of those missing pieces that we've been putting together that we now need to look at is how does what the Bible says about Satan outside of teaching about who he is fit together with everything that this series has been saying. And that's what we're going to do in this episode. Hey everyone, my name is Ray Burns, and I want to equip Christians to think biblically about every area of life so that they can keep growing in spiritual maturity. And in this kind of final or bonus episode about Satan, we are going to be looking at many of the verses that we often use or that people often bring up when trying to understand who Satan is and especially what he does in the lives of believers today and throughout all of history. Now, I will give you a bit of warning that this is not going to be a thorough, deep dive into every single verse. Uh, if, you've, if you've seen my other things where I dig into individual verses or passages, this is not going to be that level of depth. I don't got that kind of time. You don't have that kind of time. We can make that kind of time. And, and someday, uh, if there is enough demand for it, I would be happy to dive deeper. But for sake of this episode, for this discussion, which I already assume is going to be lengthy, we're only a little bit into it, but we both know it's going to be long, mostly because you can look at the play length. But I want to go as quickly as I can while still giving good uh, service to understanding what these confusing or difficult or challenging verses are really talking about, and especially showing how this understanding that we've gained of Satan is not at odds with Scripture, and in fact, gives us a much more complete view and understanding of what God has said and taught throughout all of his word. Now, to briefly catch us up with where we're at in this discussion, we want to remember that Satan is a spatial creature, meaning he occupies one space at one time, and he has the same powers and limitations of any other angelic being. He's not a super angel. He is not a lesser version of God. He is an angel, a powerful angel to be sure, but no different, really, than any other angel out there. We've talked about how he's an ancient enemy who's had thousands of years to learn how we work. And that's critical. That just because Satan can only be in one place at one time doesn't mean that he is rendered powerless. And in fact, the whole system that he has created that, that works alongside his limitations is so much more dangerous than we realize. We've seen that he works with rebellious angelic rulers to create a world that caters to every wicked desire. He can't be at all places at all time and whisper individually to each Christian out there. But what he's set up feeds everything that he wants to accomplish. Every temptation, every desire that we could possibly have, Satan has created a world that is perfect for us to indulge in whatever we may want to feed ourselves. The, the worst, most depraved things, and even those things that seem good and right, but because they are lacking the power of the gospel and a desire to love and serve God through them, are just as pointless as anything else. 
We know that the end goal of Satan and these angels that he works with is to delay their own defeat, right? As the gospel spreads throughout the world, Jesus Christ will eventually return. And so if they know that their day has an end point, the best that they can do is delay the spread of the gospel to therefore delay the return of Jesus Christ. And then understanding that, we engage in spiritual warfare when we fight against worldliness, both as individuals and as a church. You know, we we dug really deeply into what spiritual warfare is and isn't because we have a lot of, as we've seen with this whole series, a lot of kind of cultural assumptions or Hollywood assumptions that we make that renders us ineffective in living a victorious Christian life because we're trying to live out this make-believe Christian life that doesn't really have as much root or basis in God's word. And that's because spiritual warfare involves surrendering our lives to Jesus, learning and applying good theology, and sharing the gospel. And so that's where we find ourselves, right? We, we've seen how to live a victorious Christian life. It's not about looking for Satan behind every bush, but instead realizing that the, the world, the temptations of the world, living lives that are not holy, that are not set apart, that is our greatest danger. And so we, we engage in this by surrendering to Christ to, through, through good Bible understanding and study, living together individually and, and as a church to live out the life that Christ has called us to. Not just the good, but also realizing how easily we are are prone and tempted towards departing from the truth, departing from righteousness, and engaging in all the worldliness that Satan has created through this whole world system that he's had thousands of years to cultivate and lead and to guide, to distract us as well as the unsaved, to make them think that they don't need this gospel stuff, they don't need a savior. So that's where we're at right now. So with all of that understood, understanding that Satan is not nearly as powerful, but at the same time is so much more dangerous than we give him credit for. What about all those verses that come to our minds when we realize or when someone tells us that Satan doesn't attack us, that he doesn't whisper directly to us, that he doesn't feed us lies, that he doesn't tell us to question our salvation? What about those verses that we cling to so fiercely that at the end of the day allows us to be victims who don't need to examine our own hearts and our own culpability in giving into worldliness, but instead just allows us to pass the buck and say, oh, Satan brought that thought to mind. Satan brought that temptation to mind. It's not my fault. I just need to run to Jesus, not realizing that those temptations arrive Ultimately, because we are, there is an area of our life that we are not surrendering to Jesus, which has therefore made us so vulnerable to worldliness in the first place. So we have dug very deeply into Ephesians 6.11, which says, Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. We're not going to get into that in this episode. I would encourage you to go watch episode number two in this series where I dig very deeply into what these schemes of the devil are, what the flaming arrows are, and all that stuff. But I just want to remind you, we have gotten into that one, and it is much different than I think a lot of us probably assume or interpret or have heard what it means. And so before we get into what the New Testament says, I want us to take a brief walk through what the Old Testament tells us about Satan, or maybe doesn't tell us about Satan. Uh, so... 
there's not a whole lot to actually look at uh, beyond uh, Job, which is what a lot of people see, or the Garden of Eden. Uh, but I want to look at a few passages that are uh, very closely connected in terms of what's actually going on there. And then I want to look at uh, one other part of the Old Testament. And then we'll get into those popular ones that a lot of you probably have burning questions about. So in Zechariah 3, verses 1 and 2, it says, Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of Yahweh, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And Yahweh said to Satan, Yahweh rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, Yahweh, who has chosen Jerusalem, rebuke you. Is this not the brand delivered from the fire? And then a similar idea of Satan being kind of in the throne room of heaven is Job, uh, really the, the first, the early parts of Job, but Job chapter one, verse six, which says, now it was the day that the sons of God came to stand before Yahweh and Satan also came among them. Uh, last one I want to look at in this grouping is in first Chronicles 21 verse one, which says, then Satan stood up against Israel and incited David to number Israel. Now we look at that and easily conclude, oh, well, it says Satan. And look, Satan is there. He's in the throne room of God. He's accusing people. He's presenting himself before God. He's told to, uh, uh, you know, go out with Job and we, we frame it as to tempt Job, but he doesn't really tempt Job, uh, with Chronicles. You know, he stood up and he incited David, you know, he, he riled him up. He tempted him. He whispered lies to David. That's how we often read these again, because we have certain assumptions about, the name Satan or the word Satan, and we hang that on the Old Testament. Here is what I want us to see, though. Satan isn't actually a name in the Old Testament. It's a word that was transliterated, meaning that they took the original word and just, just translated it straight across. And it was transliterated and basically capitalized often because I think of how the New Testament takes the word Satan and turns it into kind of a proper name. And so then whenever that name pops up in the Old Testament, a lot of times translators will just upgrade that from a word to a name. Now, what do I mean by that? In the original Hebrew, it doesn't say that Satan presented himself or that Satan incited Israel. Instead, what it says is that Ha Satan did these things. Ha Satan presented himself to Yahweh. Now, what is Ha Satan? Ha means the. Satan means adversary or accuser. So, if you were a an Israelite reading this in the original Hebrew, then as you're reading it, those passages that we read would read something like this in Zechariah chapter three, one to two. Then he showed me Joshua, the great high priest, standing before the angel of Yahweh, and the accuser standing at his right hand to accuse him. And Yahweh said to the accuser, Yahweh rebuke you, accuser. Indeed, Yahweh has chosen Jerusalem. Rebuke you. Is this not a brand delivered from the fire? Likewise with Job. Now it was the day that the sons of God came to stand before Yahweh, and the accuser also came among them. And then First Chronicles 21.1 then the accuser stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. Now, here's why this is critical. This is not a proper name. There is no one in the Old Testament narratives of these things named Satan or Satan. 
It's a job title. Hasatan, the accuser, is like a job title. It's a role. It's a function that a spirit being is fulfilling in the plans of God. In a way, it's almost like a lawyer type figure or someone who whose job and role is to, for lack of a better word, play the devil's advocate, to be an obedient and surrendered angel, if you will, to God, but to take on an adversarial role, an accusatory role, to basically point out the issues of the people of earth. To stand and say, here's how they're wrong. Here's how they don't deserve your mercy. Here's how they don't deserve your grace. Saying probably true things, if we're honest. But their role, their job, their function is not to be this evil figure lurking in the bushes, whispering lies. But instead, to take on a function in the heavenly courtroom of God. Now, you might hear that and say, wait a minute. That means that there are good angels or good spiritual beings working against people that God not just allows it, but has designed things to work that way, that God himself would even send an angel to, to work against people. Yeah, that that's how it works. And we can actually see it very clearly in God's word in the old Testament elsewhere. And this is, where this idea of a Satan figure, right, an accuser would would play in. So look at the story in 1 Kings chapter 22, verses 19 to 23. It says, Then Micaiah said, Therefore, hear the word of Yahweh. I saw Yahweh sitting on his throne, and all the host of heaven standing by him on his right and on his left. So here we have, like I said, that heavenly courtroom scene. God, Yahweh is there, and the angelic host is all around him. And Yahweh said, Who will entice Ahab, this is King Ahab, so that he will go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? Now listen to that. Who will entice Ahab? Remember that Chronicles passage? The, the Satan figure, the accuser, incited David. God, God is asking his obedient angels, who's going to go and entice Ahab? And it goes on, and one said this, while another said that. So you have angels basically throwing out ideas to God. God is declaring what he desires, but he is, in a way, allowing input of finite beings who do not have all knowledge, who do not have all wisdom. He is allowing them to play a part in his plans. Then a spirit came forward and stood before Yahweh and said, I will entice him. And Yahweh said to him, how? And he said, I will go out and be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. Again, this is an, an obedient, if you will, holy angel who is playing a part in devising plans to make Ahab fall. And he says that he will be a lying spirit in the mouth of Ahab's false prophets. And then he, Yahweh, said, you shall entice him and also prevail. Go out and do so. So God gives his, his green light. He gives his stamp of approval, not just saying, hey, that sounds like a good plan. But 
the plan that you have proposed will succeed because God has declared it so. And as, as we know, if God declares something, it's going to happen. So while there were a lot of ideas thrown around, God chose the one that he put his stamp of approval on and said that he would make that angelic being succeed. So now, behold, Yahweh has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all your prophets, but Yahweh has spoken calamity against you. So this is what I'm talking about when I say that this, this Satan, this Ha-Satan in the original Hebrew, isn't a proper name. It's a function. It's an angelic position, similar to we have the mailman, the lawyer, the doctor. In the courtroom of heaven, there is the accuser, the adversary, whose job it is to stand against God and his people, to accuse, to point out the sin, to point out their wickedness, to point out how essentially no one deserves the goodness of God, to point out that everyone deserves to be completely wiped off the face of the earth. That doesn't make them this, this individual Satan figure that we often associate them with. They are just someone, as we see in this First Kings passage, they are an angelic being fulfilling a job that is in alignment with the world that God has created, with the system in heaven that God has chosen to, to preside over with his obedient angelic beings. Now, again, I'm not going to dig deep because you might be fine with the Chronicles one. You know, you might be fine with the one in Zechariah, but boy, that Job one's going to be a sticking point. And I understand. Let me know if you want more in the future. Now, what about the serpent in Eden? Now, I've said before in this that I have no problem saying that Satan himself, right? The Satan figure that we call Satan, the devil, the evil one. I have no problem saying that, yeah, he is the one who specifically lied, deceived Adam and Eve. And he is the one who very specifically tried to deceive Jesus Christ, pointing out that that is because they did not have a sin nature they would already drag them and pull them towards desiring sin on their own. But another thing with this that is important to point out, and I think might even help us better frame how those living in the Old Testament would have thought, is that no one understood the serpent in the garden as a specific enemy of God, ultimately until after Jesus had returned to heaven. Because we see the serpent in Genesis 3, but if you read the Bible and study it out, Satan is not identified as the serpent, right? The, the serpent is not associated as this specific, almost leader against God until Revelation chapter 12, verse 9. So this great dragon that's thrown down, this one who kind of leads the Antichrist and the false prophet in the end times that's not really linked to this Satan as we understand him until then, which means all throughout the old Testament. And as Jesus and the um, apostles were kind of living through the early stages of the new Testament, they didn't really have this connected figure to say, Oh, this, this evil being who's going to rise up and, and lead the world in a charge against God is the same one as back in Eden. As far as they knew and understood this was just kind of a one-time thing. It helped us understand why we, we fell from grace, if you will, as the common phrase goes. 
But no one would have assumed that the serpent in the garden and in Genesis 3 is the Satan figure in Job or Zechariah or Chronicles. They would have just assumed, as we saw in the first Kings passage, that this was just part of God's workings. And so the whole point of this kind of quick walk through the Old Testament is just to have us be very careful what we assume and read into based on the assumptions that we're already making. Understanding, and again, it's it's not feasible to, to assume that someone just reading their English translation of the Bible is going to be like, well, I see it, that's a capital name, but obviously that's just a title, as we would say with something like the mailman. But understanding that will, I hope, help us better read our Bibles better desire to understand how translation works in the first place, but really with within the scope of this discussion, see that when the Old Testament has the name Satan, we have to understand that that is very likely capitalized simply because of our traditions based on the New Testament that does talk about that, that does give a certain name to Satan and say, you know, this this figure that stands against God and his people, we can label him as Satan, similar to that role that was performed by one or multiple angelic beings in the Old Testament. So let's hop into the New Testament now and just look at some common passages and especially the questions that those passages bring up and how we can fit easily right, without issue, fit those passages into this, this bigger worldview, this bigger understanding that we've gained of Satan. So in Matthew 16, 23, we want to say, did Satan possess Peter? So the text that we often think of is that he, Jesus, turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. So we hear that and we say, oh, well, clearly Peter was possessed by Satan and Jesus was talking not to the man standing before him, but the evil indwelling angel or, or you know fallen angel inside him. Is that what's going on, though? Let's look at the bigger context just of this verse. It's, it fully says, but he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. So Jesus calls Peter Satan. Why? Jesus wasn't directly addressing Satan himself. Instead, he was saying that Peter was taking on this adversarial role. He was standing against the purposes of God. That's exactly what Jesus says. Jesus himself explained why he called Peter Satan. It's because Peter was trying to be a stumbling block. He was setting his mind on worldliness, not godliness. So Peter was taking on that role of an angel-like being whose, whose job, whose mission was to argue against the purposes of God, to stand against it, to cast doubt. It doesn't mean that Peter was possessed any more than when our two-year-old is having a meltdown and we say that they are being the devil. Now, we shouldn't actually say that because that's so theologically incorrect, but that idea is there, right? Or when we call someone, you know, a bull in a china shop because they're clumsy, we're not actually calling them a bull. We're not saying that they've actually taken on the physical form of a bull, 
we give labels to things because it calls back to an imagery. And that's what Jesus is doing is he is, he is saying something that may have actually even just been kind of a common phraseology, calling someone a Satan, right? An, an opposer or an opponent, an accuser, an adversary. Jesus was just calling him out on his own worldly thinking. Now, how about Mark 4.15? Does Satan actually come and directly steal the gospel from people's hearts or from people's minds? Is Satan there directly opposing any time we are giving the gospel to people and when they reject it, it's because Satan did something behind the scenes in that moment that forced them to reject the gospel? Now, where do we get this? Mark 4.15. And these are the ones who are beside the road where the word is sown. When they hear, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word which has been sown in them. So this is the, the parable of kind of scattering the seeds and the different kind of soil that it falls on and how we see the gospel uh, take root and grow and produce fruit in the life of someone. And so this is that ground where Jesus then explains his parable, saying that this is Satan stealing the gospel immediately from someone, right? Where they immediately reject it because of Satan. But what's going on here? Well, we want to, again, fit the, our interpretation of this verse with the, the bigger picture that we see in the Bible. So let's consider what 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4 say. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So we've already talked about this kind of concept, right? That Satan has created this entire worldview that doesn't just kill the, the spiritual progress of Christians, but also keeps those who are God's enemies blinded to their need of the gospel, right? It distracts them with other cares. It makes them feel self-righteous. It's different religions that make people feel secure in their own salvation or, or whatever equivalent, things like that, right? That is the worldview that Satan has created. He has made it to blind those who need the gospel to their need for it. So how does this understanding and this clarification from Paul help us better understand what Jesus is saying about Satan coming and snatching away the gospel from people who hear it? Well, in a way, Jesus is actually talking about worldliness. He's talking about the different ways that the cares and concerns of this world stand opposed to our need for a savior, to realizing that we are guilty before a holy God, that we can do nothing to save ourselves that Jesus Christ alone came and, in the context of this, would die on the cross, being that perfect lamb sacrifice for his people, taking our sins upon himself, taking our punishment so that God would have no wrath left for us, so that we could be forgiven. But the thing that makes people reject that the most, the things that, that even beyond what Jesus is talking about in this parable, the thing that robs us of living according to that truth is worldliness. Worldliness, no doubt, perpetuated, built up, and established by Satan. But Satan, again, is a very hands-off manager, right? He has created a perfectly self-functioning system that requires minimum upkeep to keep us coming back for more. So what are these four groups, though, 
in this parable that we see in Mark? Well, the first group is the one that Jesus is talking about. Those who immediately reject the gospel because they are so entrenched in worldliness that they, they won't even bother hearing the reality of it. You know, these are, you know, if you want a modern day example, these are those staunch atheists who will just absolutely reject anything gospel related, not even listen, not even consider. It's just, they hear it. They may even ask questions. They may be very cordial, but at the end of the day, they are completely unfazed by the truth of the gospel when they hear it. That's that first group because they are so entrenched in worldliness that Satan allows them to just immediately say, nope, no, thank you. I am not interested. But then we look at these other groups in the parable that Jesus gives. And we have fair weather Christians, right? Those who are initially excited, but then when things get hard, they fall away. Why? Because they like the things of the gospel when they can be successful, when they can be happy, when they can have a good community, when it's what their parents you know, brought them up in and they just had to go along with it because that's what they've always done. But when things get hard, right, when when people mock their faith, when, you know, even if we're, you know, being very honest, when tragedy strikes, right, when the Christian life gets hard. They reveal themselves not to be Christians who were once saved and lost their salvation, but those who were never saved in the first place. Because worldliness reveals where their true allegiance lies. Because they only want what is good for them, what makes them happy in the moment. And as long as Jesus does that, they'll stick with him. But as soon as Jesus starts failing them, they'll move on to something else in the world that will offer them the same kind of promises that they trusted in Jesus for. And that is comfort, happiness, a, a purpose, a meaning, whatever it is. Then there are those in that third group who are kind of those distracted Christians. And, and you know, quotes are, are very much necessary around the, the term Christian here. These are those who they kind of get started and things look good, but then they just get distracted by the shiny things in the world. And they say, ooh, here's the new hotness. And ooh, this might... Give me the answer. And they're constantly seeking truth, but they're never able to land on, on the, the, the reality of what the gospel is and especially why they must respond to the gospel and place their saving faith in Jesus Christ alone. And then the fourth group in this parable are the fruit-bearing Christians. And these are those who really are the only truly saved group in all three of these. These are the ones who choose Jesus and not the world. These are the ones who are, as far as saving faith goes, immune to the lies and the lures of the world. They are willing to see how wretched they are, how depraved they are, how hopeless they are. They're willing to see that Jesus is worth far more than what they would have to surrender to follow him. These are the true Christians who will bear fruit. Now, some bear more fruit than others. Right. But the, the, the important thing to understand about this parable is that ultimately Jesus is getting at the fact that the same way that Satan steals the gospel from those who immediately reject the gospel is the same reason that people eventually reject and, and abandon the gospel. And ultimately, it's all about worldliness. It's all about being distracted by the cares of this life. And saying, I need these, I am more secure with these, I am more comfortable with these than I am about what is truly involved 
in placing my faith in Jesus Christ, surrendering to him as Lord. So that's what's going on there is that Satan's not, you know, there, you know, invisible while you're giving the gospel to someone. And if they immediately reject it, it's because Satan was louder than you were. It's because they love the world so much that they won't even entertain the thought. But that's the same core issue as those who hear the gospel, accept the gospel, maybe even grow up in the church with the gospel, but abandon their faith because it was never really their faith to begin with. They were there until something better came along or something less worse came along. Now, how about what we see in Luke 22 verses 3 to 6 or John 13, 27? We ask the question, did Satan possess Judas? Because one of the things we talked about very early on, I think in the first episode, is that we never see an instance of an angel possessing a person. The only thing we clearly see possessing someone are demons. And I'm going to be lazy and not go back and check all my notes, but I think we talked about how demons are not fallen angels. Demons are those Nephilim spirits that we see in Genesis chapter six, who were basically angel human hybrids. And the reason that demons can possess people is because they are essentially in a way human compatible, right? They had physical bodies. They, these spirits were accustomed to indwelling a human form. And so that's why demons not only can possess people, but desire to possess people. Cause that's, that's how they're complete is by having a physical form for their spiritual form to be melded with. So again, we don't see angels possessing people, but what's up with Satan entering Judas? So let's read the text first. So in Luke 22, three to six, it says, and Satan entered into Judas, who was called Iscariot. So again, very clear. He entered into Judas, it says, who belonged to the number of the twelve. And he went away and discussed with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him, Jesus, to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So Judas consented and began seeking a good opportunity to betray him, Jesus, to them apart from the crowd. And then John 13, 27, so we saw Satan, quote unquote, entered Judas, and that led Judas to go approach these the priests and look for an opportunity to get some money to betray Jesus. And later in John 13, 27, we see again, and after the piece of bread, Satan then entered into Judas. Therefore, Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. So can Satan possess people? Can Satan possess you? Can he possess your unbelieving neighbor can you possess your child kind of seems like that sometimes, but I'm going to say no. And here's why we think of enter as Satan inhabited Judas, but we want to think of it more in terms of the influence of Satan, because I think Satan really talked to Judas because again, Satan can talk to people. He just doesn't have time to talk to me or to you because He's got bigger fish to fry. But in terms of delivering this son of God, right, this Messiah to be killed, right, to stop his plans, Satan seemed to have actually talked to Judas. And so when we think of Satan entering into him, 
we don't want to think of it as a literal kind of possession, but instead Satan having such influence, having such sway over him that he kind of steeled Judas's resolve, right? He, he bent Judas to his will. Hey, future Ray here. I realized I forgot to better clarify what I mean by that statement. So in John 13, 2, which is part of the very same narrative that we're looking at right now, John writes that Satan put it into Judas's heart to betray Jesus. So again, here's where it's showing that Satan has clearly influenced Judas's will, but is not controlling or somehow possessing his body or mind. And that's exactly what we see in another story in the New Testament. So look at Acts 5 to 3. So this is when Ananias and Sapphira basically tried to look good. They sold a piece of land, gave money to the church and said, oh, look, we've given all this money to the church. Look at us. Aren't we so holy and righteous when they only gave a portion of it? And so uh, we pick up here then in Acts chapter 5, verse 3, it says, but Peter said, Ananias why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? And so here again, we see, did Satan really fill their heart? Did Satan possess them and have and force them to make this decision? No, they were living according to their own sinful desires. And so Satan filled their hearts in the same way that Satan filled Judas. He had his worldview, and even with the case of Judas, maybe Satan himself, had such influence on the, the worldly, unsaved or unredeemed thinking of Judas that he filled him with this satanic, evil worldview that Satan has been, been, been proliferating, I would say, since the Tower of Babel, which is, oh boy, a whole nother discussion. But it wasn't a matter of Satan possessing Judas and making him go and do this thing, because that would make Judas guilt-free, right? If we're going to take this, this puzzle piece, like I said, that doesn't fit into the bigger picture of Judas being responsible for what he did, right? The language here, if we're going to be honest, when it says that Satan entered Judas, it sounds forcible. It sounds like it was against Judas's will. But Judas can't be responsible for that. That's not his fault. Instead, Judas initially is so resolved to get back at Jesus that all Satan had to do was to take him and basically aim him like a lit cannon and point him in a direction to live out his worldly desires. Because the, the bigger context of this, if you really read it, is that Judas has basically seen Jesus squandering money, right? We know that Judas was basically skimming off the top of the money. He was the bank keeper. All the money that people gave or that the that uh, Jesus and his followers earned, basically Judas held the money bag and Judas was was grabbing money out of it. And so just before Judas is initially you know, filled with Satan, he had just seen a woman pour really expensive perfume on Jesus to anoint him. And Judas is like, hey, we could have sold that and made so much money and given it to the poor and been really good with money. But what was Judas really seeing? lost profit. He was in this for money. He was sticking around for money. And now he was starting to see that his, his income, his source of money was starting to dry up. 
And so what does he do? He goes to the enemies of Jesus. And what does he say? How much are you going to give me? I need dollars. You have dollars. You have an enemy. I know how to betray that enemy. Let's make a deal. And so Satan influences Judas through his worldly desires to make him want to betray Jesus in the first place. Judas goes and looks for an opportunity. And then what happens in the scene in John calls Judas out in front of everyone subtly, right? People don't even know what's happening, but calls Judas out by giving him that bread saying, whoever's the one who's going to betray me, I'm going to give this bread to the other shoe drops for Judas. He knows he is seen. He knows he has found out. And so Satan enters into him, not literally, but his resolve, his decision is finally culminated. This is it. He is going to betray the son of God for money. There's no more doubt. There's no more waiting around. This is the moment. And Satan fills his heart in the same way that he filled the hearts of Ananias and Sapphira in that, that worldliness, that desire for self-preservation, for self-serving reached its apex in Ananias and Sapphira, just like it did in Judas. Judas was 100% guilty for what he did. That is why when, after he realized who Jesus truly was, he went and hung himself. He knew he was guilty. He knew he made his own decisions. There may have been outside temptations. There may have been, uh, you know, Satan kind of playing on his own sin nature. But Satan did not possess Judas. Satan just pushed Judas in the direction he already wanted to go. He offered him up something that was already there in the first place, right? It, it was just that buffet. He just, in one way, whether directly, whether indirectly, gave Judas exactly what he wanted. And I guess one final point to make is why I say, I, I think it's very possible and even likely that Satan was more directly involved with the whole Judas and the killing of Christ than he is typically in our lives is because of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 7 to 8. But we speak... God's wisdom in a mystery, the wisdom which has been hidden, which God predestined before the ages to our glory, which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So if you understand the rulers of this age to be spiritual rulers, which is what I would argue, then that gives confirmation that, that the, those who were responsible for killing Jesus were indeed human people, right? Judas's betrayal, those in power who kind of manipulated things to get Christ killed. But there are also those angelic spiritual rulers over the nations, like we talked about with Ephesians 6, Satan as well, responsible for killing, as Paul says here, the Lord of glory. And if they had known what they were doing, if they had realized that they were not getting an enemy out of the way, but instead they were fulfilling God's plan perfectly, they wouldn't have played a part in it. So that's what I got to say about Judas and Satan's culpability in what Judas did. Next, how about Luke twenty-two thirty-one? Did Satan attack the disciples? So in that, it says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to sift all of you like wheat. Now, depending on your translation, it may say, uh, Simon or Peter, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. 
but the Greek word there, you, is more of an all of you. So he's in, in Iowa phraseology, right? Because I'm from Iowa. Uh, Satan's demanded to sift all y'all like wheat is, is what Jesus is saying there. So did Satan personally attack the disciples? Did he ask God permission to go and attack Jesus's disciples? Well, as always, context can help us better understand what's really going on here, because just because we see the word Satan doesn't mean that the entire explanation is found just within three or four words before and after the name Satan. Instead, we want to see, okay, what is going on here? You know, what is the context? Can the, can the rest of what Jesus says give us a better understanding of what his concern about Satan's plans really are? And the answer is, of course, yes, because why would I be asking otherwise? So to continue on, it says, uh, Satan has demanded to sift all of you like wheat, but I have prayed earnestly for you. So that but there is important. That but is saying, here's one thing. Here is the inverse of it. Here's the counter to it. So he's demanded to sift you like wheat, but here is what Jesus has done instead. He has prayed earnestly for them that their faith may not fail. So that would be the end result of Satan sifting them like wheat. That is what it would look like. If Satan sifted them like wheat, their faith would fail. But Jesus has prayed for the opposite. And you, once you have returned, strengthen your brothers. Speaking directly to Simon Peter here. But he said to him, Lord, with you, I am ready to go both to prison and to death. So here Peter is saying, you don't need to worry about me being sifted because I would never abandon you. And again, this is cluing us into what Jesus is talking about. He is saying that Satan is going to want them to abandon their faith and to abandon Jesus specifically. And that's going to help us get better understand and, and calm down a little bit about what we assume Satan is desiring to do and what he actually does do through worldliness. And he said, I say to you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you have denied three times that you know me. So what moment in biblical history, right? In the, in the gospel narrative, did Satan try to sift the disciples? It's when Jesus was arrested. Peter is, is so strong, so confident. I would never betray you. I would never be sifted. But what does Jesus say? No, you will be sifted. You will give in to worldly thinking. You will deny me three times. And what happens? Jesus gets arrested. The disciples abandon him. Jesus himself, or Peter himself, denies Jesus three times. When Jesus said that Satan has demanded to sift them like wheat, that doesn't mean that Satan was going to make a direct assault on the disciples themselves. He was not going to physically or, or personally go and get them. Instead, Jesus knew that when he was gone, when, the, when their teacher, when their master was gone, worldliness would want to creep in. Self-preservation, fear, doubt, everything associated with our fallen, sinful minds was going to be very active in the disciples. And so Jesus didn't pray for protection from Satan. Jesus did not pray that they would stand strong against Satan. 
What did Jesus pray for? He prayed that their faith, that their trust would not fail in the face of opposition, in the face of doubt. Jesus prayed that they would still believe. And they did. Right? They, they had a moment where they allowed themselves to be sifted, where they allowed themselves to be broken up by their worldly thinking, by their fears and doubts. But Peter rallied, and the rest of the disciples rallied, and they spread the gospel throughout the world. They died for their faith in Jesus Christ. Right, These same men who were so afraid of what others would think of them, they were so afraid of being associated with Jesus, that every single one of them lived their lives daily willing to die for that same Savior. Satan tried to sift them like wheat by their, their worldly thinking, right? Their human fear. But Jesus's prayer was true and absolute. They still had faith even when they failed, even when they did let themselves get broken up against this terrifying moment in history. Now, how about 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 5? Did Paul give someone directly to Satan? Did, did Paul, you know, in a way, hand wrap someone and say, here you go, Satan, you can have him. I don't want him anymore. Where did this maybe happen? 1 Corinthians 5, 5 says, deliver such a one, so someone living in unrepentant sin, to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now, this one is very simple, especially as you better understand what church discipline is just in a broad sense. What Paul is saying here is if there is someone who is a part of your fellowship, someone who is a part of your local church, and they are after doing biblical steps to restore them, to call them out of their sin, if there is someone who refuses to repent of their sin, who is bringing destruction and judgment upon themselves and still trying to participate in the local church of Jesus Christ, right? Being part of the, the assembly of, of the bride of Jesus Christ, then Paul says to remove them from the church, which means instead of being part of the church, part of this kind of holy area, if you will, not that a church is actually, you know, consecrated ground or anything, but remove them from this place of godliness and set them out of it, set them in the world. So Paul's saying here, what church discipline ultimately is, is if they are going to insist on swearing their allegiance to Satan, even if they've been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, if they are going to pursue worldliness, over godliness, if they're going to be part of the world instead of being holy and set apart and part of the, the thinking and the worldview and obedience to Jesus Christ, then hand them over to Satan. Give them to the world. Let them live in their worldliness, but not to the destruction and harm of the bride of Jesus Christ. So that's all Paul really means is remove them from the church and just let them have the worldliness that they so desire. Give them to Satan because anything outside of the church is the world, and the world is Satan's. All right, so now we're going to read four different passages, all with the same basic overriding question of, does Satan tempt 
and ensnare us? Does he set traps for us? Does he whisper lies to us? These are the popular ones that we often like to bring up. So the first is 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 5, which says, Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And we'll keep reading. Ephesians 4, 27, same idea. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. 1 Timothy 3, verse 7. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. And then the last one we'll look at in this grouping is 2 Timothy 2, 24-26. And the Lord's slave must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may give them repentance, leading to the full knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. So, seems pretty cut and dry, right? Be careful because Satan's out to get you, right? Satan is going to lay all these traps. And if you're not careful, then those very individualized traps where he's prowling around and hunting you down and, and trying to individually and personally trap you, he's going to succeed. But there's a very simple answer to this that if we are honest is much more in line with our own experiences with temptation. So James chapter 1, verse 14 says, But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. In these, Paul is warning about, you know, be careful, don't open yourself up to attacks from Satan, right? Don't, don't allow yourself to fall into the snares of the devil. And again, because of how we've been conditioned to think about this whole scenario, our immediate thought is, oh, Satan's laying personalized individual traps. But no, we have to remember what is clearly taught when we're trying to understand what these things mean. And what is clearly said is that your temptation, when it comes to sex, when it comes to anger, when it comes to your pride, those are your fault. You are responsible for your actions. You are responsible for your temptations. Because you are only tempted by what is enticing to you. Your desires, what you want most in life, dictates how you are going to be tempted to depart from the truth of God. So what is Paul really warning about in these different passages? Well, when he says to not deprive one another of sex, lest you fall into the snare of the devil, that's saying don't deprive each other and allow someone to go seeking to fill their desires outside of the marriage bed. Don't, don't make it easy for someone, don't, especially your spouse, I mean only your spouse really, don't make it easy for them because you are depriving them of, of physical or even that emotional connection. Don't play into their worldly desire to go fill that desire elsewhere. Let them see that desire met in the way that God has designed it. Same thing with anger. You know, if you go to sleep on your anger, you're allowing it to stew. You're not repenting. You're not living in humble 
you know, obedience to Christ. And so you're giving opportunity to the devil, not by allowing him to whisper or to possess you by demons or things like that, by dwelling and stewing on your anger, you are going to allow yourself to give into, into worldliness even more because to be angry with someone and to especially dwell on that anger is to make yourself the most important person to say that you have been offended, that your laws, your desires, what, what you believe is best has not been met. And so someone deserves your wrath. I mean, that's worldliness on its own. And the more you live in that, the more you're going to fall further away from holiness and instead give in to worldliness. You are going to be aligning yourself with an absolutely satanic worldview that says you are the most important person in the world. Your desires must be met. People cannot offend you. They cannot do things that you don't like. That is the snare of the devil. Not opening yourself up to, to demonic temptation or possession or whatever, but literally the snare of the devil is telling you that you are important, that you matter more than that other person, that your will cannot dare be offended because if it is, then people deserve your wrath for breaking your law because in that moment, you are God. You must be the one who is pleased. You, your wrath must be satisfied for the sins of someone against you. That is the snare of the devil that we all give into when we allow ourselves to dwell on bitterness or anger. Whether it's hours, whether it's days or years, we set ourselves up as God when we will not forgive. And if we need further evidence, we can just keep reading James because James 4.1 tells us precisely where things like anger and bitterness come from. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Why are you fighting with your spouse? Why are you angry at your kids? Why are your kids bickering? Why are you still mad at your parent or someone at church or whatever? What's the real source? Why do you keep giving into that sin? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? We, our desires, our sinful desires are the reason that we sin. And we, we give in to the, the traps of Satan, not because he individualizes those traps, but because we give in to the worldly thinking that he has perpetuated for thousands of years that says that we are most important, that our desires deserve to be met, that we cannot surrender anything to God unless we are comfortable with it. But that's not what surrender is, right? Surrender is... Despite what I want, despite what I think is right for me, I trust God because he is God and I am not. Now, how about 2 Corinthians 12, 7? Did Satan directly attack Paul? That says, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations for this reason. So because God revealed something to Paul, right? He, he gave Paul a look behind the curtains, if you will, more than he's even allowed to talk about. Because of that, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself so that Paul wouldn't get super prideful, super full of himself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Now, what is this? What is this thorn of the flesh? 
there are plenty of people willing to make guesses and and make assumptions and say that they've got it all figured out. The reality is that we don't know. It could be a demon, demonic spirit or something like that that was sent to harass Paul. It could be the that there was a physical ailment given to him that was uh, you know demonic in nature. It could be that this messenger of Satan is just a a physical ailment that had nothing spiritual involved, but instead it was labeled under Satan because physical ailments are a part of the curse, right? Suffering, sickness, death is all thanks to the curse, which is part of the world, which is against the plans of God. And there is just often that dichotomy set up of either it's of God or it's of the world. It's of God or it's of Satan. Which is it? We don't honestly know. But what we often miss, whatever it is, what we often miss is that whatever it was, Paul wasn't a victim who needed to be delivered. You know, oftentimes we think, oh, you know, Satan can send these messengers, but we have to be delivered. We have to pray them away. We have to do this and we have to to purge these things from from our houses and stuff so that we can't invite these demonic spirits in to harass us and be messengers of Satan. But notice that that's not Paul's reaction. Paul isn't desperate to get rid of it. Paul is content to live with it. Because look at what he says right after he talks about this messenger of Satan that God sent to him. In verses 8 to 10, it says, Concerning this, so concerning this messenger of Satan given to Paul to keep him humble, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast in my weakness, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weakness, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions and hardships for the sake of Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So whatever this messenger of Satan was, we want to be so careful to not make Paul say more than he is. Even if, even if God allowed an evil spirit or even a good spirit that was meant to to have Paul suffer, right? Like we saw in the Old Testament with these these Satan figures. Even if it's exactly what we think it was. And even if it's a demon or or Satan attacking him, whatever. We still want to be careful because it was all part of God's will. And no amount of faith, no amount of begging or pleading on Paul's part was going to change it. Not because Paul was in trouble, but because that was part of God's will, God's plan for Paul's benefit. In the weakness that was brought on to Paul, in the humility that he had to live in, he was able to love and serve Christ even more. So I don't think that Satan was directly attacking Paul. I'm not convinced that it's a demon spirit. But I'm not going to say that I do know what it is. And I think that we need to be willing to be honest and say, this is really confusing and we just don't really know. But whatever it was, we want to realize that Paul was not a victim waiting for rescue. He was a slave of Jesus Christ who was accepting the role of suffering in his life because God 
intentionally gave it to him for his good. Now you might say, okay, but 1 Thessalonians 2.18, Satan did attack Paul, right? Paul calls him out directly saying, no, no, Satan was out to get me. Well, let's look at what Paul says. 1 Thessalonians 2.18, for we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, yet Satan hindered us. Well, that seems pretty clear cut and dry. Satan stood against Paul. Satan himself stopped Paul from accomplishing what he wanted to accomplish. Isn't that what's going on here? Well, what is Paul talking about? This isn't like the thorn in the flesh. We actually know exactly what Paul is talking about. And again, if we enter into this with our understanding that Satan is almost synonymous with worldliness, that because of how Satan has led and these, these rebellious spirit beings over the nations to create worldviews and even create uh, Abrahamic religions, right? So things like, like Islam, things like Judaism without Jesus, Satan is still responsible in a way for these things because they are all rooted in worldliness. It's all rooted in saving ourselves and being good enough in doing things that doesn't require us to surrender to Jesus Christ. Remembering that, look at what Satan did to hinder Paul from coming to Thessalonica, to this church that he's writing to with Thessalonians. In Acts chapter 17, we're going to look at verse 1 to 2, and then 5 through 9. Now, when they, being Paul, had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. So Paul did try to get there. He, he arrived where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Oh, great. Paul can go there and help them understand that the Messiah has come. He's there to, to tell them about the Messiah they've been waiting for. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scripture. So Paul went to, to Thessalonica, preaching the gospel and wanting to take it from the synagogues through the whole city, because that was his custom. He would start with the Jewish synagogues, the people of God, right, who had, had grown up living and loving God. And then when they understood the truth of Jesus Christ, it could spread throughout the city. But that's not what happened. Because we see in verses 5 to 9, But the Jews, becoming jealous, taking along some wicked men from the marketplace and forming a mob, set the city in an uproar. And attacking the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out of the assembly. And when they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have upset the world have come here also, and Jason has welcomed them, and they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And they disturbed the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things. And when they received the bond from Jason and the others, they released them. So here's how Satan hindered Paul. Now notice who is actually missing in this story in Acts. Satan. But what do we see? We see that these Jews in the synagogue who were not willing to let go of the worldly thinking they had and just kind of doing their rituals, doing their routines, being self-sufficient, just obey, you know, thinking that they were obeying the law and saving themselves. They didn't want that Jesus. So what did they do? They riled the city. They spread lies. They sought the, the power and an allegiance and alliance with city officials saying that, that the, that Paul 
was preaching a different king, that the, the only true king was Caesar, and that Paul dared to try to, to send the city into an uproar and a rebellion against Caesar. Do you see how worldliness is at the forefront to what's happening here? These Jewish leaders were not letting go of their empty, ungodly religiosity. They were so threatened that they would do anything to reject Jesus, to discredit Paul, including aligning themselves with a pagan government. Whatever it took to protect what they wanted in their religion, they were willing to do. That is how Satan prevented Paul from coming to this church, to these people in Thessalonica. He wanted to, but these religious leaders, aligning themselves with a, a worldly mindset, were not obedient to God. They were obedient to the desires of Satan and his rebellious angels. So Satan didn't directly oppose Paul, but the worldview, the thinking that pleases Satan, that he has spent all this time crafting, is why Paul was unable to get through to the city at that time. So, how about a fun one? 1 Peter 5.8, does Satan attack us like a lion? Because it says, be of sober spirit, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. You know, and this is one that I think scares a lot of people because that sounds real scary. You know, if we're not careful, Satan's going to just roar and get us. But if we look at just the language here, right? Because there, there's two things to pay attention to. One, the language. He's prowling around like a roaring lion. Immediately, we want to be careful about how much we're hanging on this simile that Peter's giving us. Because a prowling lion is not a roaring lion, right? You can't prowl and be really loud about it, at least if you're going to be effective. I've watched the nature documentaries, I know. So we, so this is clearly meant to evoke something in our minds that's not supposed to be like a literal lion doing these things. Instead, we want we can think about this really in the same way that we think about what happened in Acts 17, where Satan has has grown a worldview that is just looking to devour people, right? It's looking to keep people in the grips of disbelief in Jesus Christ, and it's looking to tear down those of us who do belong to Jesus Christ, who want people to hear the gospel. And it, it, he's created this worldview that resists us, that is so violently opposed that we may not be ready for it. We may not expect it, right? Like Paul didn't seem to be expecting to go to the place of the Jews and have them set the entire city against them so much that they were tr going to try to kill them. That's the threat that Satan poses, is he is everywhere in this world, right? His influence can be seen in every person, including us, if we're not careful. But the bigger context of this that I think we need to pay attention to is why Peter chose this specific language, right? This prowling, this, this desire to devour, this imagery, this, this specific choice might actually be a callback 
all the way to Genesis chapter 4, verse 7, when God had accepted Abel's sacrifice but rejected Cain's sacrifice. Right? Adam and Eve's first two sons, God accepted the sacrifice of one, rejected the sacrifice of another. And remember what God said to Cain. Remember the warning that he gave to him. God saying to Cain, if you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? Because Cain was really downtrodden. He was probably very angry. He was, he was in disbelief that God would maybe embarrass him. And if you do not do well, sin is lying at the door. It's prowling. It's, it's, it's pounced right outside, ready to get you. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Think about that language. What, how would you portray, how would you draw a picture of sin as God is describing it to Cain, as some kind of predator creeping outside of, of a tent door, right? The nearness of it, right? We can't see it, but it's there. It's ready for us. It wants to devour us. It wants to tear us down. Sin wants to kill us. But we have to resist. We have to be acutely aware of it so that we can dominate it instead of it dominate us. Not in our own power. It's our own power that will always lead us to failure. But through surrender to Jesus Christ, we can see victory over sin. We can see victory over the schemes of the devil. We can stand firm and resist, which is exactly how Peter says to fight against this prowling lion. Because look at the fuller discussion that Peter gives us. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Next verse. But is opposed to this, right? Is a counter to this reality. Resist him. How? By being firm in the faith knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished among your brethren who are in the world. So the, the most narrow context of this is that Peter is talking about the same kind of sufferings that we see in Acts 17, right? Whole groups opposing the gospel, bringing persecution and even martyrdom to God's people. That's what Peter is more specifically talking about. And so he is saying that to resist the desire to doubt, to live in fear, to abandon Jesus like Peter did, what do you do? You fulfill the prayer that Jesus Christ himself gave for Peter and the disciples. Instead of being swallowed up by Satan's worldview, by giving into worldliness, by letting those who hate God win, all we do is we stay firm in our faith. The only counter, the only true counter to sin, to the schemes and plans of Satan, to the whole world system that he has created, is walking in faith in Jesus Christ. Not just having good head knowledge, not having really good emotional experiences, knowing what is true, living according to what is true. That is how we resist the devil. That is how we stay firm in our faith, is living for Jesus, engaging in true spiritual warfare, not playing Ghostbusters and getting all the Pokemon cards out of our house and, and you know, casting out generational demons and whatever else people get involved in. It's not all this cool, 
you know, wacky stuff that we like to do to feel like the supernatural realm is this really big and exciting thing. And that, you know, Satan is just constantly out to get us and we got to fight against him. No, true spiritual warfare is standing firm in our faith in Jesus Christ. Nothing more, nothing less. Without our faith, without living for Jesus Christ, there's only an option B. Worldliness. Aligning ourselves with Satan instead of aligning ourselves with the King of Kings, the Savior who bled and died for us. So whether you're undergoing what Peter specifically is talking about here and literal people giving into their worldly uh, satanic worldviews and, and oppressing the people of God or just living in a world where things can be so easy that you can just drift away from Jesus and not realize it. Standing firm in the faith. Not because Satan's out to get you, but because your sin nature loves the world that Satan has created so much that we are tempted to give in to it. Now, along that same line of thinking, James 4, 7, do we resist Satan's lies? You know, is this another thing where we have to grab our Bibles and, and, and our, go into our closet and start yelling at Satan? You know, do we do like the, the weird clip of the guy who like starts yelling at this invisible Satan and chasing him around the, the stage of the Bible saying, you know, not today, Satan or whatever. Is that what the Christian life is like? Is that how we resist Satan? Well, what does James tell us? He says, be subject, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. So that sounds very personal, right? It sounds like I personally have to resist the devil and he will personally flee from me. But does that fit with everything else that we have seen? Is Satan constantly, you know, splitting himself and cloning himself? Is he omnipresent and able to harass every single Christian every single moment of the day, which means that every single moment we have to be resisting him so that we can make him flee from us and go harass someone else. As always, context is king. And so we are going to need to look at really the bigger chunk of what James is talking about here. And so we're going to look at James chapter 4, not just verse 7, but verses 1 all the way through 10, so that we can see why is he bringing up Satan here? What else does James have to say about Satan to help us understand how we resist him? Spoiler alert. Not a whole lot. And that is key. So notice in this whole discussion where James brings up Satan, everything else that he says that is very clear that can help us better clarify what he means when he's talking about Satan. So James chapter four, verses one to 10. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you is not the source of your pleasures that wage war in your members. You lust and do not have. So you murder. You are envious and cannot obtain. So you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Don't listen to the prosperity gospel. It's satanic. It's exactly what James is warning about. You ask for things to spend it on your pleasures. We are so self-focused. But that's what James is talking about here. Why are people fighting? Why are they sinning? They have desires that are not being met and they will fulfill their desires. Their will will be done. 
They will make sure that what they think they need, they have. They are not surrendered to Jesus Christ. They are surrendered to their desires, to their lusts, to their worldly thinking that tells them, this is what I need to be happy. This is what I need to be fulfilled. This is who I am. This is my identity. I don't need Jesus. Just give me what I want. And even if they pray, even if they they take their desires to God, they still don't get what they want. Why? Because their desires are not asked in submission to the will of God, but in submission to the will of themselves. That is the core issue that James is addressing as he's going on. Worldly thinking. Okay, just keep that in mind. Worldly thinking. Then he goes on. You adulteresses. I love this, right? He, he, he's calling the, these people a bunch of whores, which is okay. I can say that. God says it all the time in the Old Testament. He says that they are adulteresses, right? They are cheaters. They're, they're sleeping around with someone that they are not married to. They are not faithful to Jesus Christ. He says, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world sets himself as an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us, but he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Where is Satan in all this? Directly, absolutely nowhere. Over and over, James is addressing their pride, their arrogance, their self-love, their lack of, of humility and surrender to Jesus Christ. They are adulteresses. They are cheating on Jesus with the world. They are worldly-minded Christians. And having established that, having really gone after this worldly thinking, right, this anti-Christ worldview that they have, where they are so focused on themselves and what they want, they are so clearly influenced by the world around them. Then James says, Be subject, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable, and mourn, and cry. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. Where is Satan in all this? A little mention of Satan amidst an entire indictment against their worldly thinking. What seems to be such a clear teaching of, oh, Satan is actively out to get me and I have to personally resist him. In the context, even of just where we see this verse, we see the greatest issue is not Satan. The greatest issue is the worldliness that Satan promotes. We resist the devil by resisting all this worldly thinking that James is warning about. We resist the devil by resisting the worldview that pleases him and displeases God. Again, spiritual warfare is holy living, resisting the world, rejecting the world, hating sin, killing sin, surrendering to Jesus Christ. That is exactly what James is talking about when he says to resist the devil. 
It is not this big fanfare. It is not this heightened emotional experience. It's not this thing where we need to be terrified that because we we used blasphemy or we listened to Metallica in our youth, that we have opened ourselves up to Satan and now we have to fight against him because of that door that we opened. Your politics, your desire for relaxation, your need to fit in, your fear of giving the gospel, your religiosity, your, your need to do life your way, your need to have a personal identity that pleases you and makes you feel good. Every single way that you serve yourself, that you try to live your life apart from Jesus Christ, those ways that we try to, to shoehorn Jesus into all these aspects in our life and try to make him redeem it, that is when we are not resisting the devil. That is when we are inviting him in. He doesn't care about us. I can't prove it, but I'm still convinced Satan doesn't even know my name. I don't think he knows what I look like. He doesn't have to. I embrace him. I stop resisting him and all his schemes when I live for Ray Burns instead of living for Jesus Christ. When I want my will to be done instead of the will of God. That is what it means to resist or not resist Satan, the devil. There are no personal attacks. You are not that special. Satan does not need to roll up his sleeves and come deal with you personally because you are so holy that the only way to tempt you is through personal intervention. See the worldliness in your life. Recognize it. Realize it. Surrender it to Jesus Christ. Listen to the Holy Spirit inside of you, pleading with you, maybe even right now, pleading with you. Let go of whatever is distracting you, whatever you are making more important than your identity in Jesus Christ. Then and only then will you be resisting the devil because you'll be resisting your love of sin and your desire to let the world tell you where happiness and satisfaction truly lies. So that is going to basically wrap up looking at what the, these verses about Satan mean. And I hope that you've seen that this understanding of Satan doesn't exist in isolation. Even those verses that we use that so clearly seem to teach this almost godlike version of Satan are actually more easily understood to be associated with an, a satanic worldview, right? A world that Satan is the God of the world that he has established where he just, as I've said, lays out this buffet, knowing that with enough distractions, with enough temptations, with enough tantalizing delights, that there is always going to be something there for every single one of us to take our eyes off of Jesus, to take our eyes off the cross, to take to take the eyes of the world off their need for a savior and instead to focus on worldliness and find happiness and satisfaction there. Now I may not have answered everything. There may be a verse or two that you may be more wondering about. If there is, let me know. Maybe I can do a follow-up or something like that, but I want to end this with just a final word and reminder on why this series exists. It's important to know that Satan is real. 
I assume by this point I've made it abundantly clear I believe that. But a lot of times if if I'm talking to someone and I tell them, I don't think Satan tempts you like you think, immediately, oh, you must not believe Satan's real. No, I believe he's real. I believe he is wildly dangerous and that we are completely ignorant to what he's really up to. I also want us to realize that Satan isn't your biggest danger. You are. Your desires, your lusts, what you believe you need for happiness, that is your greatest danger because you will go searching into the world and finding whatever it is you think will finally satisfy you apart from Jesus Christ. And Satan knows that. I hope that you've seen that Satan works through worldliness to offer you that, that buffet of temptations and distractions. Anything that will take our eyes off the cross is fair game, even going to church every Sunday, but being distracted by your own good deeds, your own good works, your own superiority to others. Or maybe you are so distracted by your wretchedness that you can't even see the beauty and grace of Jesus Christ. Feeling superior, feeling so miserable that you can't even accept the grace of God. Satan wins either way. Satan doesn't just exist in the most decrepit, horrible, depraved places on earth. This satanic worldview exists possibly even in your church. And you might be bringing it every single Sunday. I hope you've also seen that the reality of your, your spiritual life is not you versus Satan. It's living in holiness versus living in worldliness. Living to what God has called you to or living to what Satan calls you towards. We always have that choice. That is always the struggle. Do we surrender to God or do we surrender to ourselves and go chase after whatever Satan has on offer at the moment? At the end of the day, the point of this series isn't to make you smart about Satan. I'm here to equip people to grow in spiritual maturity and holy living. By challenging this all-powerful, godlike idea we have about Satan, I know people have been challenged to really evaluate how much they've acted like victims by blaming things on Satan instead of taking responsibility. And that realization gets to the heart of this series. I want you to see just how much you need Jesus. We are all so easily distracted by the enjoyable and difficult things of the world and we don't realize just how much we've let those distractions push Jesus out of our lives. But the more that we see that we can only blame ourselves for choosing the world, the more we realize that we can't just run to Jesus for the big things in life. Romans 12.2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may approve what the will of God is, that which is good and pleasing and perfect. You need Jesus every moment of every day. We all need Jesus every moment of every day. He needs to be at the top of our minds with every decision we make. If Jesus doesn't form our thinking, Satan's world will. Like 2 Corinthians 10.5 says, we need to take every thought captive to Christ. Please don't just sit through the series and return to the distractions of this world. Run to Jesus Cling to Jesus and surrender every area of your life to Jesus. Be wise to what Satan is really up to. And no matter what worldly distractions he creates, remember that Jesus Christ is always better.
that's what I want everyone to walk away with this series with. It's been very focused on Satan, but we cannot see freedom from what he's doing without Jesus Christ. I hope the series has been valuable to you. I hope that you don't just see Satan better, but you see Jesus even more beautifully. That you desire to live for him truly. To not just treat him as a break-in case of emergency fire extinguisher, but that you see your need to surrender every moment to him. Because every moment that we don't surrender to him is surrendered to something else. If you have found this series valuable, if you have seen value in what this ministry offers and in what I'm, I'm trying to do in equipping God's people to love Jesus more, then I hope that you'll consider supporting it. You can do that by going to patreon.com slash onward in the faith and giving just a few bucks a month just to show your support, to show your encouragement, to help me keep the lights on, um, and to just keep being able to provide content like this for you and for your brothers and sisters in Christ all around the world. I'll see you next time.